Because we're answering the question, how should believers effectively live, operate, and make an impact when they're not in the majority and they do not have control? Not in the majority and do not have control. In our first lesson, we found out that God is in control. No matter what my situation may be, God is always in control. He has never relinquished control of this world. In our second lesson, we discovered that heaven's mission always begins with godly conviction. And we, we brought that out. We outlined that for us. In our third week, last week, we just said that your image is determined by your intake. What you take into yourself will determine the image that you become, whether you're the, in the image of God or the image of this world. Your intake determines the image that you uh, eventually project into the world. But as we're talking about this idea of not being in the majority and not being in control, we are not talking about the idea of being hopeless or helpless. Our series text is in Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. The last part of that scripture says, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. We are here to make a difference. And we're going to talk about taking action, but before we can take action, we must determine in internally who we are and what we're doing because the action of our lives is determined by the reality of our internal man our spirit man our mind will and emotions those things matter and a lot of times we'll spend so much time working on what's on the outside of us that we we fail or we we spend less time working on what's inside of us i'll say it this way sometimes we spend more time at the gym than we do at the library I like working out, but if we're not working out our mind and our spirit, then we're missing a big part of us. So we have to determine what we're going to think before we decide what we're going to do, who who we are internally, so that that can be lived out externally. What you think, what you believe determines the actions of your life ultimately. And so the context is that these four Hebrew children, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they are taken out of Judah, they are marched into captivity, and God is in control. They walk into Babylon where they're going to go through a three-year process in order to become servants of King Nebuchadnezzar there in Babylon. And so their first process is that Babylon says, we want to change your image, so we're going to change your diet. The goal of Babylon is to cause them to become the image of Babylon. The goal of this world is to cause us to become the image of the world. That the children of God look no different, act no different, think no different, speak no different, live no different than the children of the world. The goal of the enemy has never, ever changed. So their method, of change, their method was to change their identity, what they're called, how they think, and who they worship. And so our text today is in Daniel chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And you might be thinking, Pastor Micah, how much longer can you possibly speak out of Daniel chapter 1? Don't challenge me on that. Next week we're going to chapter number 2. Oh, that's exciting. 
So verse 6 says, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen from all the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. If you're looking for a baby name, a little long. Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. Now there were a couple of reasons for changing these people's names. Remember that these people are, these Hebrew boys are coming into Babylon as captives. They are in essence slaves. And so logically, Babylon is trying to distance them, them from where they used to live and who they used to, quote, be. And so it made sense for them to have, to have a name in the local language, a name that identified them as being part of the Babylonian world, the Babylonian culture. So there was a logical reason for changing their name. Then there was also a sociological reason for changing their name. It moved them towards cultural assimilation. If you, if you call me by a Babylonian name, then I'm more likely to assimilate with the culture that I'm in today versus continuing to identify with the culture that I was pulled out of in Judah. I'm, I'm not there anymore. I'm not, that's not what they call me anymore. Now, now I'm not Daniel, I'm Belteshazzar. And so you say Belteshazzar and it identifies me with a new culture, a new name, a new kingdom, a new lord, etc. But that also leads us to our spiritual reason. Because if you look at the names themselves, you find out that every one of the Hebrew names attaches these young men to Jehovah God while every one of the Babylonian names attaches them to one of the Babylonian gods, of which there were many. In fact, Daniel, Daniel means Jehovah is my judge, God, or Jehovah is my judge. Belteshazzar means Bel, protect the king. Bel was the common name of the chief Babylonian god Marduk. And so... Every time they would say Belteshazzar, they were saying, Bel, protect the king. And they were identifying Daniel with this God, their God, Bel. Then Hananiah, God, or Jehovah is gracious, changed his name to Shadrach, the command of Aku. Aku was the Babylonian moon god. And so they were saying, this is one who was commanded by the god Aku. Then Mishael, who is like Jehovah, who is like God. But Meshach, what is what Aku is? In essence, saying, no one else is like Aku. The exact opposite of who is like Jehovah. Who is like Jehovah, meaning no one else is like Jehovah. Then Azariah, God, or Jehovah helps. Abednego. The servant of Nebo. Nebo was the Babylonian god of wisdom. So each one of these, each one of these Hebrew names was a connecting the Hebrew with the god that they served, Jehovah God. And the Babylonian names connecting them with the Babylonian gods. Uh, because in that day, the Hebrew nation was unique. 
whether it be Israel, Judah, or the entire nation of the combined kingdoms of Israel. The Hebrew nation was unique because it served and worshipped a singular God. It was monotheistic, whereas the majority of cultures in that day were polytheistic. They served and worshipped many, many gods. Polytheistic religions today are Hinduism and others of that nature where Hinduism has many, many, I think it's 33,000 gods at, that, that have been identified within the construct of the, Hinduistic, the Hindu religion. And, and, and these many, many gods are, on one hand, they give a lot of individual freedom because you get to choose which, jo- which god you would serve. Now, historically, much more peaceful in a way than religions such as Islam, which serves monotheistic one God, whom they call Allah. And so monotheistic, but less peaceful in some ways. And you would think, well, a Hindu person witnessing or telling a Hindu person about Jesus would be easier than telling a Muslim about Jesus, but that's not true. Number one, Muslims accept Jesus as a great prophet. But Hindus would accept Jesus as just one more God. They have no problem with bringing another God into the fold. It's just one more of many. Very different mentality, very different mindset than Judaism, Islam, or Christianity, who are the monotheistic, the major monotheistic religions of our world. But God ultimately has one singular enemy, and that enemy is Satan. Satan did his very best to overthrow God in heaven and take his throne, but he lost. He lost that battle, and he's always lost that battle. He never had a chance to win that battle, but the the fight for the throne of your life and my life continues even to this day. To this day, he's fighting for the throne of your life and mine. In fact, Apostle Paul identifies Satan as the God of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Throughout scripture, God declares himself to be the one and only God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 4. God said to Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. John chapter 17, Jesus is speaking. He said, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. He's saying, the only true God. So in essence, he's saying that outside of this one true God, any other that would be called God is not true. But Satan repeatedly tries to distract God's people from worshiping this one true God and him only. So every single time that the Hebrews would, would be called by these Babylonian names, it would be impressing the acceptance of more, more gods or other gods into their life. Every time that they responded to uh, one of these Babylonian names, it was a response to the potential that another god would be out there. You're, not, you're no longer under Jehovah. You, Aku is who commands you now, and you have to respond to that in order to be able to be uh, accepted in the Babylonian culture, the Babylonian world, and by those who rule over you now. It's not just Jehovah 
alone. And I will tell you that today the, the effort, the war, the battle to impress and push other gods is still very real, is still very strong. And here's our big idea today. Our big idea is your worship determines your enemies and your allies. Your worship determines your enemies and your allies. And you might say, well, I, I, do I have enemies? Do I have allies? Am I at war? The answer is yes, we are at war. We are not at war against flesh and blood. There's not a single person on this planet that we are at war with, but we are at war with principalities and powers in high places. We are in a spiritual war for your soul, my soul, and the souls of all those who are around us right now. We are absolutely 100% in a war. We're in a war. And sometimes believers can, can wonder, why, it, why is it that it seems like every, every decision, every choice, every declaration made by the people of this world is just accepted and everybody champions them and it's not a problem whatsoever except the declaration, the choice, and the belief of one who believes in Jehovah God, in Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior. Why is it that, that culture seems to accept everything else except the choice of the Christian, the believer? In fact, if you watch movies, televisions, etc., you'll find that, that people who declare that there are multiple gods or that there is no God at all are declared wise. The wise shaman of some particular type of religion or the, the wise person who says there is no God let me show you the revelation of what humanity has discovered I encourage you to listen to some of the other messages before you start drawing conclusions about what we think about things but I, I would say to you that that is considered wise in our culture today people that believe gender has nothing to do with anatomy but it's about who we determine ourselves to be. And you can choose now in gender-specific elements. You can be male, female, transgender, gender-neutral, non-binary, agender, third-gender, pan-gender, gender-queer, two-spirit, and all, none, or any combination of all of those, these things. And the world says, oh, you are brave to say that you are brave to live that if you declare that you're a gender other than the one that you have been born you're heroic in today's society and culture if you choose to debase and expose yourself in order to gain fame and fortune you're called empowered and strong you're championed. But if you say that you are a believer in the God of Scripture, revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you believe that His Word is true, then you are opening yourself to being vilified. That singular statement can cause you to become known or called bigoted, phobic of all kinds, hateful, and ignorant. 
because you believe those things. All these other things, if you believe those things, you are heroic, you are brave, you are strong, you are empowered, you are wise, but if you believe the, that the scripture is true and what it says is true, then you are opening yourself to all kinds of vilification. And believers of all kinds can become frustrated and angry and hurt and confused because it doesn't seem to matter who you actually are or what you actually do and it can be very confusing and it does not make sense until we recognize that it is an issue of worship it's an issue of worship it's not about who you are or who i am as a person It's not about what you say or do or how you treat other people. What makes you a villain is who you worship. If you worship the God of Scripture alone, then you make yourself automatically an enemy of the world. An enemy of the world system. Again, I'm not talking about any person here. An enemy of the world system and the spiritual force behind the world system automatically you become the enemy of the world you worship at his feet alone and the question is well does satan want to be god no he can't be he knows he can't be he lost that battle that ship has sailed he cannot get it back he cannot be god and he knows that the enemy doesn't need you to deny god at all it's not important that you deny god as long as you lift something anything person place thing or idea anything as long as you lift it up into the same category as god then that's all that he needs he doesn't need you to refuse God. In fact, Christians for many generations have thought, well, the enemy's trying to get me to deny God. No, 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 he's not. He doesn't need to do that at all. He simply needs to get something else on the same page as God, on the same role as God, something to be lifted up as God in your life. It doesn't have to be the only one. It can be anyone. You can call it whatever you want to call it. As long Because if we accept any other God, it rejects Jehovah's claim to be the only God. It rejects Christ's claim to be the only Savior. And it rejects the Apostles' salvation message entirely. John chapter number 14, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. There there isn't a way to the Father except through me. Outside of me, there is no way to go to heaven. That that is what Jesus said, Acts 4.12. Peter is speaking. He says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. If we're going to be saved, it must be through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And that declaration simply means that it's God's way or it's no way. And, and it's very popular today to say, well, it really doesn't matter. You know, all paths lead to God. It really doesn't matter how you get there. But that's in direct defiance against what Jesus says, what the apostles preach, and what God declared. Now, I want to be very clear. It doesn't matter what denomination you're a part of, what organization you come from, where your heritage is. None of those things matter. What matters is that you're calling on the name of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
But outside of that, there is no other Savior. There is no other Savior. It's kind of like this. Christy and I have been married for 23 years, working on our 24th, and if I don't blow it, I think we're going to make it to 24. But I don't need to reject Christy's existence to mess up our marriage. I don't need to reject her existence. I don't need to say that she's not, she's not real. I don't need to say that she's not a wife. I don't even need to say that she's not my wife. I just need to say, and there's this other woman who I really like too, that I'm going to spend as much time with her as I spend with you. And that just doesn't go well. The only thing I need to do to mess up that relationship is to elevate any other person to the same level as she is in my life. I don't need to reject God in order to have another God before him. I just need to put some, an, another thing, a person, a place, an idea on the same level as him. I just need to be able to say, yeah, maybe that's right, but you know, there's another way too. Instantly, I'm at odds with what Scripture teaches. Thought number one is this. Idolatry of any kind makes a God of humanity. And notice that God, little g. Not God Almighty, but one declaring themselves to be God. The same way as Paul identified Satan as God, little g, God of this world, in 2 Corinthians. Idolatry of any kind makes a God of humanity. And isn't that what ultimately humanity is after? That I myself knows the right way for myself, all by myself. I will be me, I will do me, I will be all that I want to be, and if I, and it's really all about me. And the crux of the matter is this, our world does not have a problem with faith if humanity makes the rules. If you think about how our world is dealing with faith right now, Oh, we don't we don't mind this faith over here that faith over there everybody faith is important we we value faith it's just there is many faiths and any faith any faith is valued what we say is we will respect all people but to christ alone we will bow our knee amen i'm saying amen to myself right there The world is okay with faith if humanity makes the rules. And that is the basic reality of paganism, humanism, and any kind of idolatry. Because paganism isn't dedicated to the worship of one God. If you look at the history of of Babylon, if you look at the history of Rome, they did not conquer a nation and then say, you have to do away with your gods and worship our gods. No, they said, hey, bring your gods on in. That's great. Just add more to the collection of gods. No big deal. No problem. You worship your God however you want to. I'll worship my God however I want to. Y'all have a different God. Y'all have a different God. All people got different gods and 
that's all right, that's all good, they're all gods, it's not a problem. Except it was a problem to the one almighty God. Think about it this way. If I decide who to worship, how to worship, and when to worship, the focus of my worship may be an idol, but the focus of my faith is me. Paul said in Romans 1, he says, they knew God, but they glorified him not, a, not as God, but were vain in their imagination, imaginations. And they began to carve idols of gold and silver and wooden things. As, our imagination, as, our, as the imagination would guide them, they would, they would direct the image of their own God. And they would say, this is what my God looks like. If I get to create my own God, I'd love to, if I had time, I'd love to go into the, the construct of, of the fact that Jehovah God said, you can have no graven image of me. I won't let you put together an idea of what I look like in temporal form. Instead, I, I want you to connect with me by faith. It's by faith alone, by grace alone, that we can be saved. We, we can't attach a physical form until God said, I'm going to let my son be born of the Virgin Mary. And that's the only form you're ever going to know of him. And it's the only form that you're ever going to, that's ever going to be revealed of me. Jesus saying, I've come in the image of my father. So in the past, a less enlightened, scientifically aware world Worship many gods connected with natural phenomenon often. And today, far fewer people name those gods as their gods, while more claim no god at all, declaring reason of humanity or even self to be the ultimate authority in life. In essence, what humanity says is, I'll worship a god of my own design. And some people say, well, False gods don't, don't exist today. I mean, we don't have idol worship today. We don't worship idols today. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe they do in like the third world in, in countries, you know, that I've never traveled or been to, but, but, but not here in the United States of America. And I would say, yes, we do. Think about the idol of popularity. Doing unreasonable things to attract a crowd doing things that even cause self-harm. Recently, the Benadryl challenge on, on social media. Young women have died from taking too much Benadryl so that they can, they can take too much Benadryl, begin hallucinating, and film themselves hallucinating so that they can post it for all their friends to see their experience. And several have died. Have we done anything embarrassing? Anything beyond what's reasonable to get attention? Could it be the idol of popularity? How about the idol of ratings? Oh, you're talking about the media now. No, no, I'm talking about us. Pushing boundaries to sensationalize something, to get somebody's attention on us. Lying about something, exaggerating something to make 
things seem greater than they actually are. Just so somebody can look at us and go, whoa, or wow, or how about the idol of politics? Appealing to certain factions of society. I'm just smiling because I know all kinds of things are going through your head right now. And some of you are saying, well, no, no, I'm not a politician. You absolutely are a politician. Everybody in this room is a politician. Every time you change the way you act, dress, think, speak, present yourself because of the group of people that you're in right now, that is politics. What you're looking at right now, it may not be much to look at, but it's a lot better than what Christy looked at this morning when I woke up. Because it wouldn't be politically advantageous for me to show up in what I slept in last night. It'd also be super embarrassing. How about the idol of power? Doing what we must to gain influence, authority, and strength. Sometimes we sacrifice greatly to exp- to, to, and we expend time and we expend energy to amass power to ourselves. Certain, certain idols attract each of us. And before we get too high and mighty on ourselves, the idol that I struggle with, you may have no trouble with whatsoever. And the idol that you struggle with, I might be able to pass up in a moment. You might look at somebody and say, man, they have an idol. Wealth is an idol, and I cannot believe how much time they spend amassing wealth, and that's their focus, and that's what they're doing. And maybe, maybe wealth isn't your idol, but maybe reputation is. You drive to church. You're screaming at one another. You're flapping your hand back there at the kids trying to get them, but they keep dodging. And you get to church, you're pulling in the parking lot and you're telling your kids, you had better be on your best behavior. When you get out of the car, you best smile. You get out and you see somebody and you're like, praise the Lord, brother. (laughs) Praise the Lord, sister. You don't even say brother and sister, but you do right then because you are connected with the Holy Spirit in that moment. No, that's your garden of reputation. How are you doing today? Oh, we just had the biggest fight ever in the car riding over here today. So I'm really glad that we're at church so I can get saved. We don't, that's not your answer. Nor mine, though it might be the truth. Identifying the idol that we struggle with today can be important and it can help us in our walk with Christ. But let me tell you, I'm going I'm to save you some time. It's all going to lead back to you and to me ultimately it's about me it's about making me happy it's about liberating me to do what i want to do how i want to do it when i want to do it it's about casting off restraint as the king james version would say and ultimately it's truly unique to worship one almighty god and this is thought number two in our closing thought today what makes you different makes you powerful Worshiping the one and only God makes you different and it makes you powerful. Because while the world pushes 
the acceptance of many gods, the believer focuses their worship on the one and only God who is the one who can save. Who is the one who can heal? Who is the one who can deliver? Who is the one who can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think? And it is up to you, it's up to me to decide that I will not accept the designation of the world. I will not accept the impression of the world that I must accept that there are multiple gods or that all... No, no, I am going to follow Jesus Christ and the Father alone. I'm going to allow Him to be the only God that I will recognize in my life. I don't have time to go through it, but I would encourage you to read through it and discover that in the book of Daniel, when Daniel is writing about Him interacting with others, he always writes Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. When he writes about Babylon interacting with these Hebrews, he writes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because the king called for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king called them to his court. The king cast them into a fiery furnace. And then the king said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out of the fire. And, and we see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we see that Daniel did uh, respond to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because whenever the king said, hey, y'all come out of the fire, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah didn't say, hey, you know what, that's cool, we're okay. We're not going to respond. Call us by the right name and then we'll come out. No, they came on out of the fire, which was probably wise. But they never accepted the designation of Babylon into their own lives. And if you see Daniel, we don't see Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah throughout the entire book. But as you see Daniel continuing to write, he will write Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar. He's like, I'm Daniel. Call me whatever you want to call me. I'm Daniel. Some people call me other things. He knew who he was. And he never disconnected himself from God. He knew his God. It will be people who know their God that will be strong and do exploits. And so here's my declaration for us today. I believe that there is one body and one spirit. Just as you have been called to one glorious hope of the future, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and in all and living through all. To all we will have respect, to only one name will we bow our knee. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise the name of the Lord. And today we're going to close this service in a little bit of a different way. I'm going to ask you to stand with me.
And I'm going to ask you to make this declaration. It is a declaration that believers have made for generations. It's not used in every faith family, but it is appropriate for every believer. It's called the Apostles' Creed. And the, early, the older I get, the more respect I have for the statements made by our forefathers. And so, I invite you to read with me. It'll be on the board. It'll be on your screens at home and in the additional seating. But I invite you to say this with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen and amen. Can we thank God for who he is in our lives today? Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me right now and just ask, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me in this service? Could it be that I've allowed something to lift itself up in my life to rival you? I would never deny you, but maybe I've allowed something else to rise up and it, it directs my life. Maybe I'm, may, maybe as much as you. Maybe I've allowed ideas to flourish in my heart. Ideas based upon relationships or ideas based upon what I wish was or hopes that simply go against the Word of God. Today, I release them to you, whatever they may be, in Jesus' name. Pastor David, why don't you lead us in this song?